Our text today is from the book of John, chapter 15, verses 18, into chapter 16, verse 4. This is in your bulletin. John, chapter 15, starting at verse 18. If the world hates you, know that it has hated me before it hated you. If you were of the world, the world would love you as its own. But because you are not of the world, but I chose you out of the world, therefore the world hates you. Remember the word that I had said to you, a servant is not greater than his master. If they persecuted me, they will also persecute you. If they kept my word, they will also keep yours. They will also keep yours. But all these things they will do to you on account of my name, because they do not know him who sent me. If I had not come and spoken to them, they would not have been guilty of sin. But now they have no excuse for their sin. Whoever hates me hates my father also. If I had not done among them the works that no one else did, they would not be guilty of sin. But now they have seen and hated both me and the father and my father. But the word that is written in their law must be fulfilled. They hated me without a cause. But when the Helper comes, whom I will send to you from the Father, the Spirit of truth who proceeds from the Father, he will bear witness about me. And you also will bear witness, because you have been with me from the beginning. I have said all these things to you to keep you from falling away. They will put you out of the synagogues. Indeed, the hour is coming when whoever kills you will think he is offering service to God. And they will do these things because they have not known the Father nor me. But I have said these things to you that when the hour, their hour comes, you may remember that I told them to you. This is the word of God. A little over two months ago, the, an ISIS cell in Nigeria released a 56-second video. And a voice in the video says, This message is to the Christians in the world. Those you see are Christians, and we will shed their blood as revenge. And so the terrorists in the video, they find one of the Christians in the middle, they shoot him, and he dies, and they push the rest to the ground, and they behead all of the Christians. Eleven bodies on the ground after the video is over in 56 seconds. Conservative estimates state that around 260 million believers around the world live in active persecution right now. Around 3,000 are killed every year. This is just the numbers that we can keep track of. It's probably more. And that means that between the start of this service, when we started at 11 o'clock, and when the last person leaves this cafeteria at the end of our catered lunch, 2 o'clock, at least one of our brothers or sisters will die for their faith. And by the end of the day, at least eight believers Christians will have died because they follow Jesus. Why does such a thing happen? Why is there such a severe and harsh response to followers of Jesus? And this is the question that I want to explore today. We're in the farewell discourse, and these are the final words of Jesus to his disciples before he is killed. This is Thursday night, the next day, Friday, Jesus will be killed. And we've gone through the first portion of the discourse over the past few weeks where Jesus, he tells the disciples that, that they're going to go to the Father, that they will be given the Holy Spirit, that they will be nourished by Christ as they abide in him. And he offers them a supernatural peace as they're about to enter a new phase of following him. Jesus knows that difficult days are ahead, so he speaks these words to them. 
And we've, as we've gone through this farewell discourse, we've seen that Jesus is speaking words to his disciples to prepare them for his departure. He's leaving them, so he speaks words of comfort to encourage them, to calm their fears. And in today's passage, he's preparing them for the world's reaction to them. Last week, last week's passage that Pastor Michael spoke on in John 15, it, it, it ends with Jesus talking about what Christian relationships look like. Christian relationships should be marked by a deep, self-sacrificial love for the other. And why must there be love among the disciples? Why must there be love among the church? It's because those outside the church will hate the disciples. So if you are a follower of Jesus, you need to understand this, that you will follow him into difficulty. I gave this dramatic example of persecution just a moment ago. Um, Maybe we'll never experience something like that, of watching our brothers and sisters being killed in front of us. But Jesus' words still apply to us. Because this world will hate followers of Jesus. Sometimes this hatred looks like snickering. Sometimes it looks like ridicule or embarrassment. Some of you have or will lose out on opportunities or career advancement. You might even lose your job for being a Christian. Some of us might lose friends or romantic prospects. Or we might be disowned by our families. Some of us will pay a very heavy price for following Christ Our church might be criticized. We might be attacked for faithfully proclaiming the word of God because following Jesus is necessarily costly. You cannot follow Jesus without suffering. So Jesus, he speaks the words in today's passage to prepare his followers for the days that lay ahead for them. And in our time together, I want us to understand that being called... a disciple of Christ, being a follower of Jesus will cost us something. Our passage today contains this promise that you will be hated by the world. You will be hated. But church, you need not fear because Jesus has given us an otherworldly power to respond to the hatred. So we have three points before us today. Uh, I'm going to use these points to help us get to uh, my, my, my intended purpose For us to understand what God is saying. So the first point is this. The reason for the world's hatred. Number two, how we're we're to respond to the world's hatred. And finally, number three, the invitation to those who hate Christ and his people. Our first point. In last week's message, we looked at Pastor Mike... We looked at Jesus' words, and Pastor Michael spoke uh, about the vines and the branches. Jesus says that he is the vine, that we are the branches. Jesus says, abide in me, and I will abide in you. We are in Christ, and Christ is in us. The theological term for this is union with Christ. And this is an idea that conveys this radical identification with Jesus. To the point where everything that, that marks our lives, everything about us is grounded in the person of Jesus. We're so intimately united to him that we have no identity apart from him. Some of us might understand that. Some of us are so wrapped up in our jobs that we cannot imagine our lives without our jobs. Some of us are so into our families that we cannot imagine life apart from them. That means that our identity is found in those things. 
But for the Jesus follower, if our identity is defined by our relationship with Christ, that means that we cannot make sense of our own lives or of reality apart from Him. It means that we so radically identify with Christ that we cannot be in step with culture. It means that we should be the weirdos in the world. This is one of the ways, this is one of the ways in which we are out of step. Our culture encourages people to create their own identity, to live in their own truths. So in this culture, Bay Area, uh, people do that. Their lives are a monument to their creativity and their, their wits and their smarts. Their lives are a monument to their unique ways of understanding the world. They create their own meaning. They, they create their own values to abide by. They live by their own preferences. And I think in some ways this is a very beautiful thing because it means that we have the freedom to, to figure life out, figure things out for ourselves but often, as we try to build our identity, we're completely untethered from an objective truth. We need an objective truth to tether our imaginations. Otherwise, we'll build our identity on something that is fleeting and unstable. So when Jesus talks about him being the vine, and when he talks about us being the branches, he's saying that the disciples have an, an identity that is grounded in something that is unshakable. Our identity is grounded in Christ himself. Earlier in the discourse, Jesus says that he is the way, the truth, and the life. He doesn't say, I am a way, I am a truth, or I am a life. But he says that he is the only way to God. That Jesus is the only truth there is. That he is the only life that we can have. And that means that there are no viable alternatives for us. All other ground is sinking sand, as the hymn says. Every other way leads to death and condemnation. If you are not in Christ, you are living a life that will ultimately be destroyed. That's what Jesus is saying. If you build your identity on something other than him, if you do not abide in Christ... So what does Jesus do? In this passage, he says that he exposes the truth about humanity. Jesus is shaking the things that people build their identity on. Look at verses 22 and 24. This is what he says. If I had not come and spoken to them, they would not have been guilty of sin, but now they have no excuse for their, for their sin. Whoever hates me hates my father also. If I had not done among them the works that no one else did... They would not be guilty of sin, but now they have seen and hated both me and the Father. In other words, what Jesus is telling us is this, that the world hates Jesus because he exposes them for what they really are. Jesus says, my presence shines a light on the darkness in every person's heart. When you see Jesus, when you encounter Jesus, he's going to expose you as a sinner. Jesus is a threat to our identity. And this is why the world hates Jesus. Because they love the darkness, the scriptures tell us. And if you love the darkness, you're going to hate the light. Anne Rice was a popular author for many years, starting in the 1970s. And she wrote like books about vampires. Um, 
And she's been, for decades, she's been a popular author. In the 2000s, she published a book entitled Christ the Lord. And as she was doing research for her book, she, she read a lot of different books, both Christian and non-Christian, uh, really smart people writing about Jesus as a historical figure. And this is, while she was doing her research, this is, she found something really interesting, and this is what she writes in the book. Um, it's a bit of a long quote, so follow along. Many of these scholars, scholars who apparently devoted their life to New Testament scholarship, disliked Jesus Christ. Some pitied him as a hopeless failure. Others sneered at him, and some felt an outright contempt. This came between the lines of the books. This emerged in the personality of the text. I'd never come across this kind of emotion in any other field of research, at least not to this extent. It was puzzling. The people who go into Elizabethan studies don't set out to prove that Queen Elizabeth was a fool. They don't personally dislike her. They don't make snickering remarks about her or spend their careers trying to pick apart her historical reputation. They approach her in other ways. They don't even apply this sort of dislike or suspicion or contempt to other Elizabethan figures. If they do, the person is usually not the focus of the study. Occasionally, a scholar studies a villain, yes, but even then, the author generally ends up arguing for the good points of a villain or for his or her place in history or for some mitigating circumstance that redeems the study itself. But this is her, this is what she ends with. People studying disasters in history may be, may be highly critical of the rulers or the milieu of the time, yes, But in general, scholars don't spend their lives in the company of historical figures whom they openly despise. What is Anne Rice saying? That Jesus isn't a historical figure that you can study from a distance. There are many other very interesting and consequential people that we can study. It's possible to spend your whole life studying just one person that you admire. You can do that. It's even possible to spend your whole life studying one person that you may not admire, but you still find fascinating. But at the end of the day, you can step away from this person that you're studying, and you can, you can continue to live your life as you planned. But there's something different about Jesus. This is what Anne Rice found. What she discovered was that there was a visceral reaction to the person of Jesus from scholars who spent their entire lives studying him. Many of these scholars simply did not like Jesus. Many expended a great deal of energy trying to disprove the sayings that are attributed to him. Why such a reaction? What is the difference between Jesus and other historical figures? What's the difference? At the end of the day, whether or not the things that other historical figures say are true, whether their actions were right or wrong, you don't have to deal with these figures on a personal level. Neither Queen Elizabeth nor Steve Jobs demand your full allegiance. Martin Luther King or Jane Austen, they don't force you to rearrange every aspect of your life. But if Jesus is who he says he is, If what he says is true, then your life must change. When we truly meet Jesus, nothing can ever be the same. Our old identity is stripped, 
And our new identity is completely wrapped up in the person of Jesus. So this is the reason for the world's hatred. The world hates Jesus because he is a threat to their identity. He is a threat to their independence and autonomy. He shines a light on the world's sin. And he demands repentance. He demands that they respond to him. And he demands that they give their entire lives to Jesus. Jesus will always, always threaten your sense of comfort and safety. And this would explain the world's hatred of the followers of Jesus. If we are united with him, if we are abiding in him and he in us, then we can't help but reflect Jesus. Elsewhere in the New Testament, it says that we give off an aroma an aroma, a stench of death to the world that does not know him. But if you do know him, we give off an aroma of life. So the world hates us because in us they see Jesus, and in Jesus they see a threat to who they are. Their foundations are shaken if they truly meet Jesus. So if the world hates us, then how shall we respond? How shall we live in response to the world's hatred of Jesus' followers. Our next point, the response to hatred. Look at verses 26 and 27 again. But when the Helper comes, whom I will send to you from the Father, the Spirit of truth who proceeds from the Father, he will bear witness about me. And you will also bear witness because you have been with me from the beginning. How are we to respond? Jesus tells his followers that they will have the Holy Spirit who will be a witness for Jesus. And it means that the followers of Jesus will also carry out this task of bearing witness of Jesus. That means that when we're confronted by the hatred of the world, we testify of who Jesus is by our words and our lives. When the world, when you feel, when you sense the hatred of the world, you don't shrink back, you don't attack back. Instead, you can engage those who hate you. You can be a part of this culture. We can love our neighbors and co-workers or friends. It's possible to do this without affirming their beliefs. Why? Because the Christian story gives us the tools to live and engage in the Bay Area culture. We don't need to be swallowed up by it. We don't need to run away from those who hate us. Instead, if you really are completely identified with Christ, it means this, that we can exist, the church can exist as outsiders that know that there's something beyond what we see here and now. So we will be hated, Jesus promises. But he says, you will still be my witnesses in the world. Do not run away. Do you know what we're we're to be? We're to be, I just learned this word a, a week ago, extremophiles. If you are into science, you might know this word. An extremophile is a microorganism that has the ability to thrive in the harshest environments in the world, whether it be they be hydrothermal vents or maybe there are, uh, in, in parts of the ocean, there are rivers of corrosive acid. And there are extremophiles that live and thrive in environments where other living things would simply die. There are parts of the world that are so difficult to live in 
that only extremophiles can live there. Every other organism would shrivel up and die. And they're able to live in these environments because they, ha- they have something called, another word I just learned this week, extremozymes. Extremozymes. And these are enzymes that are unique only to extremophiles. And I think these extremophiles are an example for us. Jesus' followers are called to live in a world that hates Jesus. In Romans 12, Paul tells us, don't be conformed to the world, but be transformed. So Christian, what are you to do? You are called to live as a resident of this world, but as a citizen of another world. And just as extremophiles have extra extremozymes, we have the spirits. This is the helper that Jesus speaks of in verse 26. He says, The Spirit bears witness about me. And so do we. In the face of hatred, those who profess Christ will be a witness to the world. That's why God places us where we are, to be a witness to him. We are to be his witnesses, and we are to give the world something that only we can give. The author, Arthur Glass, writes this. Christians in the world have a role to fill that many... that. Let me start over. Christians in the world have a role to fill that non-Christians cannot possibly fill. They have to break the fatality that hangs over the world through reflecting in every way the victory that Christ gained over the powers. They are to be a sign of the new covenant, a demonstration that the new order has entered the world, giving meaning, direction, and hope to history. If you are a follower of Jesus, you have something that the world cannot understand and that the, that the world cannot have. That means that you should be living a life that looks different from your neighbors. What might this look like? Instead of being a people that have to be right, we're a people who don't need to be defensive. We can be more interested in understanding the other side because we don't need to be threatened by the opinions and beliefs of others. This is what it looks like for us. It also looks like this. Instead of gloating over the failure of your your enemies, we pray for blessings upon them. We love the enemies of the church. We love those who hate us. This is what the Jesus follower does. We don't get offended when our political party is attacked because we know that our citizenship is in heaven. We don't grumble when things don't go our way. Paul tells us in Philippians, the way that you shine like a light in our generation is by receiving with joy the situation that God has given you. By not grumbling, by not complaining. Do you want to be different from the world? Stop complaining. Stop grumbling about your situation. If we follow Christ, we can speak the truth of the gospel with courage. That means that as followers of Jesus, we speak both of the love of God and also the jealousy and the wrath and the anger of God. We speak of both heaven and hell, regardless of the consequences. The way that we spend our money is different. Our sexual ethic is different. Our metric for defining success is different. We now live in a climate of fear that did not exist a month ago. At the beginning of January, 
That was a completely different world. The coronavirus is now here, not too far from us. The stock market plunged this past week. People were panicking. Your portfolio, if you have one, definitely took a hit, a painful hit. Costco is running out of toilet paper. (laughs) And do you know what Jesus followers do in times like these? What do we do in these difficult times? Jesus followers rejoice because we know that God is sovereign and that he is with his people. We do not put our confidence in the stability of society or in the security of finances because these are nothing before the Lord. Listen to the psalmist, Psalm 2. The nations rage and the people plot in vain. Do you see the nations raging today? Are there people plotting but we take refuge in the Lord. Psalm 46, God is our refuge and strength, a very present help in trouble. Therefore, we will not fear, though the earth gives way, though our wallets be emptied, though the coronavirus enter our body, we will not fear. The Lord of hosts is with us. The God of Jacob is our fortress. Church, what do you have? It's especially in the most difficult times that the church has an opportunity to be a witness of Christ. Especially when things are difficult. The darker the sky is, the brighter the stars shine. I just learned this phrase a couple months ago. Have you ever heard this phrase? A non-anxious presence. A non-anxious presence. It's, uh, this is a phrase that recently entered the vocabulary of certain circles and mental health circles and in some Christian circles as well. I love this phrase because it communicates something. It communicates that when everyone else around us is fearful and anxious, we can be rooted and grounded. We can bring a sense of stability and peace Think back to what Jesus said earlier in the farewell discourse. My peace I give to you, not as the world gives. We have a peace that the world cannot have, and we have a peace to offer that it needs. So the world might hate the church, the world might hate you as a Christian. But what will the world think when it sees the church at peace in these days? Chances are it's going to get worse. I was on MarketWatch.com this week and it says there's a pretty good chance there's going to be a recession. And I was on CNN this morning and it said the epidemic is spreading to a pandemic. It's going to get worse for the next couple months at least. So what do we have as a church? What will the world see when it sees us? It might hate us, but it also might see something beautiful in the church. And Jesus says, you will be my witnesses when the world hates you. This is our response to the hatred of of the world. To bear witness of Christ, to bear witness to the goodness of Jesus, to live faithfully among those who do not love him, that do not know him, loving and serving them as Christ has loved and served us, to live with a calm and peace that doesn't make sense to people, and we're to warn them of the judgment on their sin that can only be escaped through Christ. 
we do this in the power of the Spirit, and it's through a gospel, through a message called the gospel. And it brings us to our final points. So how can we be a witness in this world? How are we able to do this? How can we bear the hatred of the world? And how can we be a witness? The, the word witness in Greek is martyros. It literally, literally means martyr. There may come a point when your witness of Jesus is that you will be martyred, killed for your faith. But until that happens to you, you are to bear witness to who Christ is. Someone needs to bear the hatred of the world on us, and someone needs to bear the hatred of the world that deserves punishment. We have an example of this in my favorite movie of all time, Christopher Nolan's Dark Knight. Um, if you're familiar with the characters, it might be a little bit easier to follow, but I'll try to explain what, what happens. So Harvey Dent is the DA of Gotham. Gotham is the city that the universe of... This is the universe of, of Batman. Harvey Dent is the district attorney. This is the dutiful and noble servant of the city that everyone looks to to fix the crime and injustice in the city. And when he first meets Bruce Wayne, who is Batman, if you don't know, when he first meets Bruce Wayne as Bruce Wayne, he says this to him. He says, you either die a hero or you live long enough to see yourself become the villain. And as the movie progresses, Harvey Dent, he becomes embittered when his fiance dies at the hands of the criminals. And he wants revenge. He becomes violent. He becomes corrupt in his search for revenge. He kills both criminals and cops. And Harvey Dent, the once noble and loyal and dutiful DA, is most angry at Commissioner Gordon. Commissioner Gordon is the commissioner of the police force. And he blames Commissioner Gordon for allowing his fiancée to die. And in the final scene of the movie, he traps Commissioner Gordon and his family in a secluded area to psychologically torment them and probably to kill them. And here is Harvey Dent living out his phrase, you either live long enough, you either die a hero or you live long enough to see yourself become the villain. Harvey Dent is a hero that has become the villain. Batman, of course, is always hiding in the shadows. He comes out of nowhere and he pushes Dent to the ground, killing him. And Commissioner Gordon, he tells Batman that Harvey Dent was the best hope that Gotham had for cleaning up the crime problem because everyone looked to Harvey Dent. It would have been on the strength of his reputation that they would have been able to fix things in the city. People admired him and trusted him, but he became corrupt. He became evil. He became the villain. And he couldn't even die a hero because he ended up killing several people himself in his search for revenge. Batman and Commissioner Gordon, they they look at his body, and Batman repeats the line that Harvey Dent said to him at the beginning, you either die a hero or you live long enough to see yourself become the villain. And then he says to Commissioner Gordon, I can do those things because I'm not a hero unlike Dent. I killed those people. That's what I can be. He's taking the blame for Commissioner, for Harvey Dent's murders. The commissioner protests, but you're not those things. And Batman responds, I'm whatever Gotham needs me to be. You'll hunt me, you'll condemn me, you'll set the dogs on me. And then the scene flashes 
to the future, forward just a few days later, to the commissioner standing in front of a large photo of Harvey Dent. And he's addressing a crowd. And he's, he's praising Harvey Dent because everyone thinks, everyone in Gotham thinks that Harvey Dent is a hero. His reputation has been upheld. And then the scene goes back to Batman running away from the cops and their dogs. Commissioner Gordon's son sees Batman running off and he asks his father why he's running. And the commissioner says, because we have to chase him. And this is the son's reply. But he didn't do anything wrong. What's happening here? Batman took the blame for Harvey Dent's murders. Batman lets his reputation be torn to shreds for the sake of the wrongdoer. He let himself be hated. Batman is the real hero that has become the villain in the story. Now, do you know what this is called? This is called substitutionary atonement. It's one man receiving the punishment for another man's wrongdoing. And in the Christian story, substitutionary atonement is a truth that Jesus exchanged identities with us on the cross. Jesus became the sinner. He became sin who knew no sin. Jesus became the sinner and we became the righteous ones. Jesus had the dogs set on him. Jesus was condemned. He bore the hatred not only of the world, but he bore the hatred of God's he bore God's hatred of sin on the cross. This is what Jesus did for you. And now we are free. Our reputation, our standing before God is made perfect because we now bear the perfection of Jesus. The world hates Jesus because he threatens its identity. But the gospel says that he will give you a new identity. The reason we're, we're so often scared, why we're, we're, we're anxious perhaps about what people think of us, the reason why we might be fearful of the world's hatred and judgment for our beliefs is because we're concerned about what people think of us. I, if you follow the cultural trends, for you as a Christ follower, you will be more and more disrespected. People will look down on you. This is coming, and it's going to get worse if the cultural trends continue. And if we become fearful, it's because we forget our true identity. But remember this, if you are in Christ, your, your reputation is already secure because the one with a perfect reputation gave his reputation up for you. The King James Version, of, uh, tra- the King James Version translation of Philippians 2 puts it this way. I, I really like how it puts it. Jesus made himself of no reputation. He made himself of no reputation. And if we understand what Jesus did for us on the cross we would have so much courage because we could say, I don't care what the world thinks of me. I don't care. Martin Luther says, the body they may kill, but God's truth abideth still. We can have so much courage because of the gospel. The gospel is an offer to those who hate Jesus. It says, no matter what you've done, 
no matter how tepid your love is for truth and beauty, no matter how far you've run from God or how hard you've tried to avoid Him, He loves you. He loves you. He loves you enough to give you a new identity. He loves you enough to bear the penalty of your sins. You may hate Him, but He loves you. He loves you. Let me end with these words from Romans 5. For while we were still weak, or you can say this, for while we, while we still hated God, at the right time Christ died for the ungodly. For one will scarcely die for a righteous person, though perhaps for a good person one would dare even to die. But God shows his love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Will you pray with me? Father God, we don't know what the future holds, what hatred the world may throw in our, in our face. We don't know what consequences we will have to receive and endure for following you. But we believe that it's worth it. We believe that it's worth it because our life is a mist. And beyond this world, beyond this life, we have union with you forever and ever and ever. So God, make us a church that is courageous. Make us a church that loves the truth. Make us a church that will stand up for the truth. Let us bear the hatred of the world because you are enough. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.